Welcome back to the Old History Podcast, part of the Old History Project. So, just some news for you guys. I know I said it last in the last podcast, but this Tuesday, the seventh, uh, I said I was I had been nominated to receive an award. I'm going this Tuesday to see if I won anything. I don't know if I did. Uh, this is coming from the East Tennessee Historical Society, so this would be my second award. So. Thanks to all of you for, you know, helping to make that happen. It's been really fun doing all this history stuff, you know, podcast and making videos. You know, it's really, honestly, really fun. I have no uh, videos planned, although I'm considering making a few of the old style videos that I used to make, like the history of, you know, picture videos and stuff narrated. Don't know yet. I kind of just taking a chill pill, but. Okay, so some bad news. Uh, for whatever reason, Anchor has ended my ads that I put on the videos, or on the podcast, excuse me. I don't really know why, but it's it's totally fine. So that was the only source of income that I had, you know, from the entire Old History Project. You know, the videos on YouTube have ads, but those are not for me. Those are, those are uh, courtesy of YouTube. And I, I don't make money from those. Uh, nothing on Facebook. So if you guys would like to help, I have it set up to where you guys can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, it's not required. I'm not going to make it required like Anchor wants me to. Uh, you guys can subscribe. I think it's like 99 cents a month. Like I said, you don't have to. It's not required. So, okay, so this podcast is going to be over the Fort Sabert Massacre, which I have covered before. Uh, it's honestly one of, I, I like reading about it, you know, because I was going through some some family history on, uh, digging up some family history on Ancestry or whatever, and somebody had this in here. It was an entire outline of the, of the Fort Sabert Massacre. And for quite a long time, it was considered, the, you know, one of the worst massacres in United States history. This comes from, uh, I think it was attached to my great-grandfather, Captain Johann Jacob Sabert, and his family. So, uh, I'm connected to this because on my mom's side, uh, her mom was a Sieber. And, you know, they're, they, they come from Germany. It's a very German name. Sieber is Sieber is misspelled from Sabert, but probably because they couldn't understand, or maybe they couldn't read or write. But anyway, uh, in a time when this was before the United States declared independence, uh, before the war for independence, any, you know, any of that. So this was, I think, even a little bit before the, you know, the whole road to independence chapter of our country's history started. So we were still colonies ruled by England, and in all of these territories, and you know, you had certain places in the backwoods, uh, there were little forts, little stations, and they were set up by town, you know, locals, soldiers, or country people, to you know, to protect against the raiding natives. And this was a practice that would extend, you know, for quite a ways. Uh, into I think it even can extended into the 
all the way up into the late 1800s, like you know when you got further out west, before all the natives had been pushed out or exterminated, killed. So anyway, we're in the 1750s. So these forts would be built where all like a, a congregation of people would live in these, and there'd be garrison with soldiers, little a little supplies, you know, and it would do them over to protect against the raiding natives who would at that time this is French and Indian War be paid by the French or British to conduct attacks uh, or if they wasn't being paid they could have been enacting clan law or blood law as it's called so basically in that if someone from your clan committed an act against one of theirs they would seek out either you and if they couldn't find you they would seek somebody of your clan and well they'd kill them Anywho, one of these forts was called Fort Sabern. As I said, it was named after Captain Jacob, Johann Jacob Sabern, who was from Germany. So, just a little background information here. Uh, George Washington actually didn't want there to be several, all of these small forts scattered around the country. He actually would have rather had several well-garrisoned forts with companies of rangers. And when you talk about that, you then you start to understand why it was such a bad thing for the state of Franklin, or excuse me, the Watauguans, to be where they were. Because, well, North Carolina didn't have the resources. You know, they were drained from the war. They didn't have enough resources or money to send troops all the way over the mountains into, you know, the Watauga area to help them. And, well, that made them mad. Which is what George Washington didn't want to happen, uh, you know, 20 years earlier. So, just to talk about it a little bit further, uh, when George Washington actually did present a plan for the forts, you know, for the well garrison forts, but uh, the General Assembly actually liked it, but they stated that, you know, most of the forts, you know, they're already built by the country people. And this, or the soldiers, and they honestly require a little improvement. So there were Forts Upper Tract and Fort Sabred, uh, but the garrison had been removed from. I think this Fort Upper Tract happened first. So there, the garrison was out gathering food or supplies, and there were about five people had been killed and eight captured on the branch. And I think this, both of these are up around the Potomac. I don't exactly know where. I'm not, I never really looked into where it actually was. So, five people killed, eight captured. Uh, Major Andrew Lewis, who, who was in charge of the militia of Augusta County, uh, wrote to George Washington. He said, there is one place uh, that is vacant uh, and is not yet garrisoned. The consequences of that may be bad. And this is quote unquote. So he's talking about, I think he's talking about Fort Sabre here, uh, but nonetheless, this Fort Sabre was not garrisoned. Fort Upper Tract wasn't garrisoned. They were, they had left, they had crossed over the mountains to go uh, gather supplies or I don't know exactly what, where they went, I've never read. But uh, most of the men went across the mountain, and on April 28, 1758, there was a Shawnee war party 
that was organized by Chief Kilbuck, they approached Fort Saber. And it's long been suspected that Kilbuck himself was hiding under a nearby bridge. So after the war party killed a few men, uh, Chief Kilbuck called for a truce, telling the defenders to surrender the fort, threatening no mercy if they did not, but promising good treatment if they did. Being low on supplies and ammunition, Captain Saber, uh, Sabert obeyed this deceitful command. However, his son Nicholas Sabert had been woken up from all of the ruckamore roar going on and attempted to shoot Chief Kilbuck, but missed when another man deflected the gun and only knocked up dust at his fleet. For those of you that never have never read on Chief Kilbuck, he was thought to be invincible in battle. It's honestly really, really cool reading about this. But uh, the gentleman told Nicholas of the surrender, and he became so mad that he attempted to use violence against his father Jacob. And when the gate was opened, Chief Kilbuck hit Jacob in the side of the head with his tomahawk. Nicholas did not surrender, but was taken prisoner. After the war party had gathered all of the prisoners, the fort was then set on fire. After this, the Shawnee marched the prisoners about a quarter of a mile west of the fort upon top of a hill. They were then separated into two groups. They seated them in rows on two logs. The row on one log was for captivity. The other one was for slaughter. And those to be killed were tied hand and foot. And on a signal, the doomed prisoners were tomahawked and scalped. And they, their bodies were left where they fell. The day after the massacre at Fort Sabert, a relief party led by Captain Brock undoubted, um, undoubtedly notified uh, by Major Robertson. Uh, he arrived at the, at the ruins, but it was too late to do anything except bury the slaughtered victims. Their corpses were interred in one grave, which is still marked to this day, undoubtedly very near the spot where the tragedy occurred. There is a stone wall erected around the grave where it stood for nearly a century, and George Washington estimated the total loss at total loss of life at Fort Upper Tract and Fort Seabrook at about 60 people. The burning of the forts and the general havoc wrought in the foray delivered a severe blow to the infant settlements, but the land was not abandoned. The captive pioneer children lived in a Shawnee Indian village near Chillicothe, Ohio. So after more after a year or so, maybe two or three years with the natives, uh, Nicholas Sabert arranged for the escape of his brothers and sisters, as he had become a trustee with the natives, and he was allowed to carry on fur trading with the French. One evening, when a wagon load of furs was taken out of camp, he put his brothers and sisters in the bottom of the wagon, piling furs on top of them. As the wagon was driven away, Nicholas remained at the camp, manifesting his surprise when the uh, native chiefs discovered their disappearance. He pretended to be dis as disturbed as they were, and then that same night made his escape. And then several years after his return, uh, Nicholas Siebert sold his father's farm to John Blizzard and made a new home on Straight Creek, and some of his descendants still live in that, in that vicinity to this day. From 1768 to the early years of the Revolutionary War, he would own a tavern or an inn at Frederickstown, Maryland. He went into the Revolutionary War for Maryland and became a lieutenant. He later dropped out of the Maryland Regiment to join the Virginian Regiment. After the war, he spent the rest of his life on Straight Creek in present-day Highland County, Highland County, Virginia, 
where he and his brothers owned land. So now this is a very common story, and I've I've actually got a video of, of another story uh, that relates to this. It's a story of another family member. It's uh, Abraham's or Jacob's lover. Uh, they they were basically taken captive, but those stories are extremely common. That uh, you know when you get back into the 1780s, 1760s. Because a lot of this territory, in, until the 1760s, after the 1760s, you couldn't really settle west of the Appalachian Mountains. But before that, it was considered dangerous territory to even be there. Because the native people really didn't like the English settlers. You know, and for good reason. You can't really be mad at them. The stories are about as numerous as there are, you know, trees. They're, they're everywhere. Every family has... When you go back, they have the story like that. It's the same thing with William Bean uh, in Bean Station. I think his, I think it was his wife or his daughter was actually taken captive by Nancy Ward. But Nancy Ward actually saved her from being killed and instead taught her how to farm and stuff like that. But then she was given back, given back to William Bean sometime later. And that's a different, just another example. Not all of the natives were there to kill. Some of them were. Some of them were paid off. Some of them were there for some kind of revenge or blood law. So, nonetheless, if you've made it this far, thank you guys so much for watching and, excuse me, listening. And just thanks so much for helping to support the project. Uh, it's been really fun, and I can't wait to see what happens next. So, thank you guys. See you guys next time.